Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And today, Bill, we want to talk a little bit about American exceptionalism. Yes. And um, it's coming on the heels of the Super Bowl. I actually always root against New England. Um, uh, It's just uh, probably just a pure jealousy thing. But... um, it was an interesting game last night. Yeah. It was like the Empire Strikes Back. Well, you know, you, you can't have your defense on the field for uh, two-thirds of the game against Tom Brady and expect good things to happen. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was entertaining. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I mean, I can't believe 20, how often, I mean, I would love to know, like, the Nate Silver percentages, how often a team comes back, you know, like, from a, like, from a, 20, it was 28 to 3 at the half. No one's ever come back from that. No one's ever come back from that deficit. Not in a Super Bowl. In Super Bowl history. Yeah. In a game, maybe, but. No, yeah, I don't I don't know. It'd be very, very, uh, very low. Yeah. But, at any rate, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't really paying attention to commercials. Was there anything worth, I didn't even have time today to look online for the rating of the commercials. Did any of them particularly speak to you? I didn't, I don't know. I really, I'm trying to think which commercials I liked. I, I, there, there weren't that many that were memorable. I thought the Anheuser-Busch about the immigrant, that was kind of, that was neat. And uh, yeah, that was, I liked that one. Uh, but I can't really, nothing really particularly impressed me last night. And uh, you liked the halftime show. I, was, I did. I was okay with it. I mean, I'm not a Lady Gaga fan. I'm a big Lady Gaga fan. But uh, she did an admirable job, and I think the fact that she was only subliminally political, uh, I mean, even starting out by singing God Bless America, I, mean, I think... Um, she, or, or uh, yeah. Our America the Beautiful. America. Oh, wait, she did, uh, then she did uh, This Land is Your Land. Oh, did she do that? Anyway, yeah, I read, well, I wasn't... Yes, she which, did. That's which what, was written in as, as a direct response, like, because Woody Guthrie didn't like America the Beautiful, and he wrote that in... Protest to America the Beautiful. Yeah, although America the Beautiful does have at least it's self-critical a bit, but uh, no, this land is your land is a protest song, and it is one we if you, we never sing all the verses too because they get they get darker as they go along too. Yeah, yeah well, that, that yeah, I mean that's uh, yeah. it, it's. I wrote a piece about this for Mockingbird today. It's called Gaga for Gaga. I actually wrote about the omission she makes. And oh, all right, I'm looking forward to read that. Yeah, it was it was not bad. It was not a. Yeah, it was fun to write. All right, very good. See, so, yeah, and I think, see, we didn't talk today, so exactly. I, didn't know, I didn't know what you were doing. Exactly, I was. Uh, it was. It was quickly written. Very good. Well, I look forward to seeing it, and all of you should read it as well. And Bill, you actually posted something to a group uh, yeah. that now we 
we've we've uh, both participate in certain kind of online discussion groups at times. At times, yeah. And mostly for recreational purposes, yes, exactly <laughs> for diversion to keep us away. I use it as a distraction from the work I should be doing. But yes, we do periodically post, and um, yeah, that's something we do. Hopefully, an extension of what we do here in our in our podcasting, as well as what we do in our thinking and ministries. Yeah, and you posted in the philosophy and religion group an, ar- an article that we both read. It was in the New York Times. It was, uh, I think, maybe in the book review or something. It was The America We Lost When Trump Won. Yeah, it may have been an editorial page. I don't remember uh, what it was. It was the Sunday Review. It was Sunday the opinion review. page. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. By Kevin Baker, who Kevin Baker is like a novelist or something. He's a... Yes, yes, I think he is. He's a writer. And a great, a very, he's a novelist, an essayist, and the author most recently of America the Ingenious. A good writer and interesting, seemingly interesting guy. And you posted this in the philosophy and religion discussion group, and you were rebuked. Well, right. And I gave an intro about, <clears throat> I started out be- before I posted it. Well, as part of the post, I said that my own little commentary that um, one of the things that both Ronald Reagan, I mean, both Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama had a particular view of American exceptionalism. And I think both of them were wrong in not only their optimism about human nature. So I think there's an anthropology problem with both of them. But also just their optimism that we're going to get it right. I don't think it fully, and again, I think Barack Obama fully owns where America has gotten things wrong. And you could even say that his very election of being president is a sign that we can kind of do some things right. But I still think their optimism about Americans ultimately going to get it right. Uh, I don't see any... um, I don't see enough data for that to be a valid um, assumption. So that's that was kind of what I said. And that, I feel like that where Americans love that. I mean, it's like Norman Vincent Peale. It's why we love Joe Olstein. Sure. It's like we. I mean, people like to hear it's morning in America. Where for better or worse, we are a fundamentally optimistic people a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think it is for better, and I think it is for worse. I think it's part of. There's a lot of good things about our optimism and our sense of hope. Um. But there's also a part of it that's a, a bit of a denial. I mean, um, uh, the I just lost his name, but we were talking about the more conservative um, editorial writer for Ross Douthit. Douthit wrote an interesting. I actually posted. I think it was on Saturday's New York Times about part of the problem is how do we own? You know, at some levels, there's two competing stories about America, um, and the you know, for lack of a better, the Donald Trump story of America versus, um, you know, identity politics America. So there's a sense where America has done some wonderful things and almost simultaneously, not almost, simultaneously, America's always been doing awful things as well. Now that's, we're not, we're not unique in that. And maybe in some ways at times we're more self-critical than other folks but this whole current movement is one less, you know, this is whole one object lesson and non-self-criticism. Matter of fact, the opposite. Um, when there's a mistake made, you change the facts uh, or you blame somebody else. So, yeah, I think so this idea of American exceptionalism is, is you know, when you, when you have a president saying everything's going to be America first, uh, and which, by the way, has created a whole bunch of hilarious countries coming up with 
you can be first, but we want to be second. So I've seen them by the Netherlands, Portugal, Switzerland. They're very, they're very funny. They should, that's, that's a good, that's a good waste of time online. But I, I just take issue with uh, the nature of American exceptionalism as a, as a philosophical notion, uh, if, unless it's criticized. But I got criticized for saying it was a philosophical notion. <laughs> In fact, what was said was, let me just say by the moderator of the group, Wait, I've got to go into the group again. Hang on. I've got to find the, uh, where is it? Here's the post. This just makes for bad radio right here. Moments like the four comments. Here we go. <laughs> it's uh, the moderator, I guess, says the, this political post seems insufficiently connected to philosophical or religious matters, unless there is an objection which can bring engagement on the topic or topics of this group. I intend to remove it. I will leave it up to see if anyone wishes to object to it. It's removal and on what grounds. And you say you don't think the notion of American exceptionalism is without religious or philosophical implications. I can't believe I'm reading the comments, but I am. (laughs) (laughs) To which he responds, a fair question. Do you think it has, he all caps, (laughs) such implications? (laughs) Can you talk about some of them? By the way, boys and girls, if you're listening at home, here's an illustration of how you narrate all caps. Yeah, exactly. Has. (laughs) (laughs) It is an idea that has eclectic sources, you say. It certainly has both a religious notion derived initially from the Puritans, and a secular one personified in Thomas Paine. It builds on notions that are both Lockean and influenced by Scottish realism. I would grant that it is not cleanly philosophical, but neither is Middle Platonism. <laughs> yes, so here I, st- here I stand. <laughs> and I want it known that we are going to post this podcast in that group. <laughs> Well, good. Well, hopefully, we'll get. I, I, the, the idea of getting banned actually feels pretty good to me. What does that say about me that my my post may be stricken from the record? I kind of like that. I'm the, I'm the same way. I like. I find myself. Um, like you know, it's funny. I I love. I get so jealous of Sarah Condon if I write something. She gets like trolls and detractors and stuff. Like, why don't I get trolls? Like, why don't I have? Uh, like, well, I, you, I, you're you, inher- and you get trolls too. I don't like we on this podcast, I would say 95% of the critical troll commentary. We don't have a ton of it, but you get, you get most of it. I think you're just, you inherently are, are a likable person and you're nice. Like that's, that's what sometimes. I sometimes, well, I'll, yeah. And we're talking about online on, on, on why we're recording. <laughs> but this guy, this guy made my list though. This guy in the, I, well, you, he's, you he's, got very, def- well, I mean, <laughs> again, what do you call? I mean, it, what would be the proper category to put the idea of American exceptionalism? Uh, Aristotle said that we are rational animals and that political science is the highest form of science because it's sort of coming together to share the goods we have in common. Because we're, we're, we're not just rational animals and more actors, but social. social. So politics, he thought, was the capstone philosophical science. So there you go, gang in the group. <laughs> Aristotle has a place for a thing like this. Has. Aristotle, was he in Asia? He's a dead white guy. Another one of them. You know? Exactly, exactly. Um, but at any rate, so um, what um, what should we say about American exceptionalism that hasn't already been said other than um, I do think this idea of competing narratives about what makes American exceptionalism, that's interesting. And then take, you know, I, I took two steps away. I think both narratives are flawed, uh, whichever they are, in terms of trying to support an American exceptionalism. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I think if American exceptionalism is a sort of aspirational reality, hmm. it, I don't think it's bad. Like, if, if you say, hey, like, too much is given, 
much expected sort of thing. And we, and we kind of think about our role in the world as one where, you know, on our good days, we, we can maybe leave it a little bit better than we found. I mean, I, it was really interesting. I remember Rick Warren in 2008, uh, he, was, he did a candidate for him with both John McCain and Barack Obama. Yeah, and they I came remember up, that, yeah. And he asked them both the same, same questions. And one of the questions he asked was, how do you deal with evil? Do we confront it? Do we contain it? Do we, and, you know, McCain was like, we destroy evil. We can't, you know, <laughs> but, but Obama. By the way, we need him on the wall right now. Yeah, yes, we want him on that wall. <laughs> we, we, we want him on that the wall. The wall that McCain is, John McCain, we need him there. Uh, and, uh, I'm glad he can handle the truth because we need somebody doing this. We do need somebody. John McCain, we need you, buddy. Uh, but, but yeah, and, and Obama was much more circumspect. I mean, he was much more right. saying, hey, he was saying we got to watch a lot of the greatest evil in human history has been done in the name of eradicating evil. And he was, I mean, you could tell right. he had read his Reinhold Niebuhr. Right. right. And so I think that that, that sort of idea that, that, we can have a positive role in the world, and yet, knowing that you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right. and, and having a sense of our, a, 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 a sort of a realistic sense of our limits, I think is good. Yeah, I mean, for instance, if if theoretically, if you said, is it good to plant the seeds of democracy throughout the world? I think theoretically, we would want to say yes. Is it good to plant the seeds of Monsanto throughout the world? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. But um, the trouble is um, that um, if you actually believe in democracy, then you can't overthrow the governments that get democratically elected when we don't like them. And and that was our history, certainly in the 20th century, in some very uh, significant ways. Um, I think in, in what has happened in the you know in the, particularly in the Middle East, um, we. We don't understand the complexity, or we didn't. Maybe we know a little bit better now, although I'm not sure. The Arab Street, and um, and so I mean George W. Bush when he says, you know, we want to bring democracy to places. Well, we all want to celebrate. I mean, on on one level, we want to celebrate that, but you know, how many million people dead later, um, and we have a much more unsafe and unstable Middle East. I mean, I think part of it, and obviously, it's so it's a lot of complications why that happened. But, um, you know, that's part of the problem of, of when, when we have conflicting, when our democratic ideals get in conflict with our national interest. Yeah, I mean, I heard Shaman Paris give a lecture once where he said that you have to modernize before you democratize. Right. And, by, and he said two hallmarks for him about modernity are free markets and how do you treat your women. Oh, I, 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 those are just basic benchmarks where yeah. the, if, you, if you don't have free and ex- free fair exchange of goods and if half the population is disenfranchised you're probably just going to have mob rule and tyranny through the ballot box if you democratize yeah and i just lost his name but i will i will remember it in a future episode uh a person i heard lecture in, in israel this you know the lecture was you know can we reconcile our judaism and our zionism and for i mean for christians i think can we reconcile our Christian convictions and our nationalism, and I think in some levels it's it's actually more complicated for Christians, uh, but it's equally complicated for Jews too. And it was a it was a very important thing and uh, to be, think about because at what point do our national ideals come in conflict with our our Christian ones? For instance, you know uh, when the uh, Trump administration was trying to backpedal 
of the disastrous ways they were, you know, unraveling or unveiling all these executive orders. Uh, he said, well, Christians should, Christian refugees should be, get priority. Uh, and uh, to their credit, uh, many Christian leaders came out and said, no, that's, that's inherently unchristian to do that. And, uh, um, and I do think that's, that's part, of the, part of the conflict. I mean, um, a friend of ours, uh, Matt Milner, uh, wrote an article today for First Things. We won't always be plugging First Things, but we will when Matt Milner writes an article, as long as we can basically agree with it. I'll tell you what, the woman who does uh, their voiceovers, the podcast, very good announcement. All right, very good. Anyway, Matt wrote a book about walking through the Billy Graham Library at, at Wheaton, and Billy Graham being a life lesson that obviously his son has not learned about what happens when you weld your theology to power. And uh, this story has been told many, many times. I've actually heard Billy Graham um, say it himself, but his kind of being blinded to Nixon's character, being close to power, and you know, golfing of all these famous people. And I will give Billy Graham credit. He did not make a fortune off of, off his ministry. He lived and lived modestly. And, but at any rate, he, he hobnobbed with dignitaries and politicians. And, you know, there's pictures of him golfing with Nixon. Matter of fact, Nixon gave him a set of golf clubs, but Billy Graham learned a lesson. Now he was, he himself said, I was, you know, I was blinded and my inner, you know, my inner compass was dulled by where I was. Chuck Colson, of blessed memory, said the same thing when he was working for the Nixon White House. He brought all these Christian leaders in, um, and this is before the rise of the you know, moral majority and now the entrenchment of the evangelical right. He said, "But we needed in some key geographical areas. We brought them into, you know, as soon as they got into the West Wing of the White House, and we have them there. We got everything we wanted from them and didn't have to concede anything." And uh, he says you know, how intoxicating power can be to the religious community. So I think particularly from a Christian perspective— now, let's just say that. If you're a politician with some cushy like ego stroking that you'll do, Bill and I, we, we were particularly susceptible to this. So if anybody wants to court us with the trinkets of power and prestige— I did. You know where to find it. Yeah, although I, I've not, I, might, I have to admit, maybe you want to go without me because the couple times I've hobnobbed, it hasn't gone totally well. Yeah, I'll hobnob solo. Yeah, you better go. I'll hobnob solo. I, and I, I was in the Bush White House, uh, Bush Senior White House. Um, long story how I got there. But anyway, <clears throat> and so I have some youth group kids with me and we're meeting Barbara Bush. And we're going this, you know, we're doing a photo opportunity and I'm shaking her hand. And one of my smart aleck youth group kids in the back row goes, Ask him who he voted for. <laughs> That's a true story. Yeah. Wow, was it Dukakis? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't her husband. <laughs> no, that would have been Dukakis. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was when he rode around that tank. I remember, know. Remember I, know, I, know that? I know. I know. I know. Dude, he was thirty, like thirty points up at one point. I know. I know. I'm, I can't. It's like it's like uh, it's like the Falcons. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. Every time I can't actually hardly picture. Uh, Dukakis in my mind, but I can see John Lovett playing Dukakis from Saturday Night Live. But anyway, that's another that we get off when he goes up to the podium and presses the button and it lifts up. <laughs> lifts <him> up. <laughs> and then there's a scene where he's talking to the mothership. He's actually an alien. <laughs> that's funny stuff. That was yeah. amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, 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 I think that the halls of power thing is a, is a, is a problem. And I also think that what's interesting is about the populism is that freedom, an American conception of freedom now is being 
it seemingly, I think, determined by and large or almost exclusively as freedom from. Yeah. So yeah. it freedom from trade agreements, freedom from international entanglements, freedom from all these things. And I, I think that, it, I mean, maybe also, I mean, maybe we're kind of a self, I mean, you know, there's, we're a culture that's can be incredibly narcissistic and selfish at times. And maybe this is mirroring some of that. Maybe our conception of our, our relatedness in the world is this sense of freedom being determined or defined so much in the negative. Yeah. I think that's a change that, that, that is a little disturbing. Yeah. I think what is being undone right now is really 70 years of American self-understanding, you know, you know, starting with World War II. And uh, I'm not saying everything that we thought about ourselves was right, and everything we've done uh, since then has been right, but this is a paradigm shift. You know, for me, one of the things I was thinking about— Because it doesn't seem like it, doesn't seem like it comes with a humility, like, hey— We've really kind of there's no we, we've there's made no. some bad moves in the world and we got it, it's it 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 doesn't come across that way like that it's a course correction a humbling a, a more measured self reflective it just seems defensive I, I mean we there's not a, there's not an ounce of humility in President Donald Trump there's not, I mean there's not he's never exhibited any evidences of such traits and the fact is he's a winner. A significant portion of the population is identifying with that as much as anything else, the strong man, the authoritarian. I, you know, I think one thing to me, that, and this is to people of faith, okay, those of you listening, I think when you, you, you need to look at our national history, I think in a, as a, a model for how to look at our national history is our holy text. And if I was on the editorial board of the Pentateuch or the Deuteromistic history, you know, if if I was the person in charge of editing what the— Say Pentateuch, it would be shorter. <laughs> the Patriarchs or the Book of Joshua or Judges. Or, uh, you know, if I was going to edit Galatians in, in the conversation between Peter and Paul— I would have made it look a little— You would have put Mary in there? I would have Get put it. something. Peter, yeah. Paul, and Mary. Instead of having a fight, they would have sung together or something like that. But my whole point is our written holy history um, includes an awful lot of warts. I mean, I, you know, the Hebrew Scriptures, The power, part of the power of the Hebrew Scriptures is it is an extended discussion on how they failed as much as of how they were successful in their call— and and if you read the New Testament properly, you can see that as well. I mean, for instance, Jesus was a large it was it was a pretty lousy human, human resources guy when it comes to who he picked. And I would argue that he still, uh, if if you if you want to judge the quality of his uh, hiring policies, you can look at all of us because I think there's obviously a different standard going on than what you and I would say is a good way to pick people, and that's part of thanks be to God, but. We should be able to be as critical, uh, self-critical about our national history as our holy texts are about our religious history. And I, I think to deny uh, the realities of how the West was both won and lost, the incredible, uh, incredible injustices that went in to this country against all kinds of groups, okay, not only— 
uh, the heinous uh, institution of slavery. But almost every, every ethnic group that's listening to this, your people were incredibly discriminated against. My people, our people were incredibly discriminated against when they came to this country and suffered horribly uh, as outsiders. Uh, and we can go on and on about our international policy and things like that. So at least we need to be honest and balanced about what's both good and about what's not so good about our country. Because if we if we treat if we have a double standard of what we do nationally as opposed to the things we know to be true about spiritual and psychological integrity, then we're going to do worse things than we've done already as a country. Yeah. I, 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 I concur. Uh, I was thinking about some, something that uh, Paul's also says in grace and practice in sexual grace and politics, which I think is a, a great section of the book where he's actually trying to say, well, what would my theology look like on the ground? Uh, he said that, uh, he says that two themes identify a theology of grace, and, and he's talking about social class here, an application of social class. The first is what liberation theologians such as Gustavo Gutierrez and Jürgen Moltmann call the preferential option for the poor. A theology of grace is a theology of the cross rather than a theology of glory, and it looks for the opportunity of God in weakness rather than in strength. Strength. This proceeds from what has already been said, the opus Proprium, or proper job, job of God, consists in his compassion toward need. God meets us at our point of need. We need. When need is at its breaking point, that is God's point of entry. The social implication of this is the preferential option for the poor. A theology of grace tilts in the direction of, econom- of the economically poor. The form of Christ's Beatitudes that has come down in St. Luke's Gospel, blessed are you who are poor. And he goes on and, and spells this out, and he says, and then he says, the theology of grace invites a non-romanticized preferential option for the poor. The picture of this is probably something like a moderate, non-ideological, and non-utopian form of socialism. Is this sort of socialism everyone put together? If people sometimes speak of New Zealand and Canada as if they've reached this goal. <laughs> uh, you know, he says, but, but, you know, but overall, he says, you know, uh, something like this may be, uh, may be uh, where his theology leads. But I like that it's non-utopian, non-romanticized. That that he's he's saying that that we would have would be a society that had a politics of compassion that was not utopian and 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 didn't overestimate the things government can do and yet still attempted to be a, a culture that had a politics that met people at point of need yeah. and I think that's a great vision I, yeah. I wish that is a kind of vision I feel like that wherever you are in the political spectrum but that that, you had, that we had a Politics that was focused on need and was non-utopian and non-romanticized, right? And not and non-self-serving. I, again, I, it's interesting when you were saying that. I remember a quote from uh, Bishop Zulu, uh, who was a South African bishop. He said, "Just because God's on the side of the poor, does not mean the poor are on the side of God." Yeah, <laughs> and I yeah, think, and yeah. I think, and just because, um, um, just because you say, "God bless America." And and hope for the good for our countries. And I think we should pray for the city or, you know, the good of the city that we're in, the good of the country we're in, regardless of where we're at. Um, you know, don't deny your faith in following some sort of political um, political vision that's not even real, true. We seek a city with foundation. Builder and architect is Almighty God. Amen.
But it seems so far away But we're traveling like today In the eye of the storm In the eye of the storm Home To a new and a shining place Make our bed and we'll say our grace Freedom's like burning war Freedom's like burning war